they couldn't determine if it was a man or an ape or just what it was, and so they were reluctant to shoot at it. You know, it doesn't matter how much people run their mouth. When you're not really sure, you might be shooting at a man, you know, you're going to think twice. Ladies and gentlemen, we Lynn was about 30 or 40 feet from this creature, which he described as, you know, an upright, uh, hairy man, basically. That was his first impression, that it was some kind of a wild man. Uh, it had long hair all over its body, you know, seven feet tall. Uh, its face was dark, flat nose. Um, hair was covering its eyes. This is definitely not something he made up for attention. He, he wanted none of it. He never spoke about the incident in public, ever. Several people lived close to Boggy Creek, said they would just look out their window and there'd be people camped all over their front yard. I literally just started looking and realized, man, nobody's written a book on this. I can't believe it. You know, the movie, movie tagline is a true story and so I thought man I want to know what was true what you know now I'm an adult what was really real about the movie what was the history of the creature do people still see it today and now ladies and gentlemen Banal of America Audio with your host Tim Banal What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And this time on the program, I believe we have the ideal conversation for folks who are suffering through the sweltering summer heat as we return to the realm of the cryptids with our guest Lyle Blackburn author of The Beast of Boggy Creek. In this lengthy conversation, we are going to be discussing Tex Arcana's infamous Falk monster, made famous in the film The Legend of Boggy Creek. Lyle is going to detail the evolution of the Falk monster phenomenon, the famous sighting which started the media frenzy, the many sightings which predate the flap that exploded in the media in the 1970s, as well as the filming and fallout of the very famous film The Beast of Boggy Creek, and how that changed the perception of the monster. We'll learn about the geography of the area and find out why it makes an ideal location for a large cryptid to lurk. We'll talk about the controversial claims of a cryptid skeleton allegedly found in the area, and Lyle will recount some of the truly breathtaking sightings of the Falk monster by locals in the area who had run-ins with this truly troubling creature. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. Altogether, it is a richly detailed conversation on one of cryptozoology's most popular yet under-discussed creatures as we separate fact from fiction on the Beast of Boggy Creek, with Lyle Blackburn. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Lyle Blackburn, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. 
Lyle Blackburn is a professional writer and musician from the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. He has always been fascinated with legends, lore, and sighting reports of real-life monsters, and is the author of the new book, The Beast of Boggy Creek, published by Anomalous Books. During his research, Lyle has often explored the remote reaches of the southern U.S. in search of shadowy creatures said to inhabit the dense backwoods and swamplands of these areas. Lyle is also a staff writer and cryptozoology advisor to Rue Morgue Magazine, one of the leading horror media publications in print today. His Monstro Bizarro blog is featured on the Rue Morgue website, and his Monstro Bizarro Presents news column appears monthly in the magazine. In addition, Lyle is the founder and frontman for the rock band Ghoultown. Since 1998, Ghoultown has released eight albums, toured extensively in the U.S. and Europe, appeared on several horror movie soundtracks, and was recently featured on the syndicated television show Elvira's Movie Macabre. His website is monstrobizarro.com. Pretty simple, all one word, monstrobizarro.com. And, as noted, the book is The Beast of Boggy Creek, published by Anomalist Books. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 5th, 2012, Lyle Blackburn, talking about The Beast of Boggy Creek, on BOA Audio, Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And this time on the program, we're going into the realm of the creatures once again. And we're heading down to uh, Southern America to look at the Beast of Boggy Creek with our guest author, Lyle Blackburn, who is the man behind the book, The Beast of Boggy Creek, the true story of the, the Falk Monster. And I believe I pronounced that correctly this time. We'll, we'll touch base with uh, Lyle in a moment to make sure I did. And the book is from Anomalous Books, as I said, The Beast of Boggy Creek. And it looks at, chances are, what many people have heard about from the film Legend of Boggy Creek, which is this sort of uh, Bigfoot-like creature that's said to inhabit where Arkansas and Texas and Louisiana all sort of come together there in southern United States. And it's a very compelling book and really a very important book. And I kind of liken it to last season's appearance from Stan Gordon, who documented the 1970s UFO Bigfoot flap in Pennsylvania, because really this is a very concentrated look at a very specific, cryptid, and really looks at it over the course of all the years that it has been cited, and it's just a very important book for people who really want to sort of put all the pieces of the paranormal puzzle together. This is one you're going to want, folks. So definitely go out and pick up the book, and we're going to really delve into this mysterious creature right now with our guest, Lyle Blackburn. So, Lyle, welcome to BOA Audio. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking. I am too. I, I just finished the book today and it was quite enjoyable. And as I said, very important because, you know, maybe you can tell me, I, I, have there been any books on this particular creature before or is this uh, pretty much sort of like breaking some new ground as far as really trying to document the specific creature? Well, it, it's uh, the first, you know, complete history of the creature. The the only thing that uh, there's been uh, Smoky Crabtree, who most people who are familiar with the movie Legend of Boggy Creek and, and this whole fountain monster thing, 
uh, he, he did some memoirs in which he talks about experiences in making the movie and his, his family's experiences with the creature. Um, you know, back in the 60s and 70s and even, you know, even more recent in some of his later memoirs. But he only talks about them mostly in relation to his life. You know, his books are full of, you know, him growing up in Arkansas. And they're great books. But, uh, you know, when I was looking around, uh, you know, I, I really couldn't believe nobody had written a book on this either uh, at any level. And so I just decided I'm going to do the most complete, thorough history uh, trace it back as far as I can. I cover the movie, everything. So this is the first book that's ever been written on this. Awesome, awesome, excellent. Yeah, that's what excites me about it and, and why I said uh, in the introduction here it's very important because, you know, this Falk, how do you say it again? Let's let's get that one more time. So I... <laughs> you, you got it, Falk. Uh, all right, there you go. This uh, this Falk monster, I'm sure, you know, as, as, as you'll attest to, it's, I'm sure it's been mentioned, you know, maybe it's gotten a chapter in some book somewhere or even maybe a couple pages or a paragraph or something, but this really is sort of like the definitive study on this creature. So it's uh, very, very important for people who are interested in uh, not just cryptozoology, but the whole world of the paranormal because it's uh, one they want for their library for sure. Now, we usually start out with sort of the bio, the background. You know, who is Lyle Blackburn? How did you get drawn to the Beast of Boggy Creek? Well, uh, yeah, I'm all over the place. I'm a musician, a writer, uh, you know, a, a Bigfoot researcher. I mean, I, I love all cryptozoology, but as far as my research, it's mostly con- concentrated on Bigfoot creatures and mostly here in the Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas area. Um, I basically, the, the short of it, as to how I came about writing the book was um, several years ago I started writing uh, for a horror magazine called Rumorg, which is it's on the shelves out there. A lot of people know of it. Um, and I, I kind of – I've known the guys for a while because they had covered covered my band, uh, done features because my band kind of has a horror element to it. Um, and so we've been in the magazine – I guess we got to talking, and I mentioned that I, you know, love cryptozoology and Bigfoot, and the, the editor there was all into it. He's like, oh, man, I love The Legend of Boggy Creek, you know, all the old Yeti movies, all, all the whole thing. And <laughs> and so, like, oh, yeah, you know, and I, I for some odd reason, had written a, a, some article on Bigfoot in films or something, and I gave him the article, and... um I've written for some other magazines in the past, but anyway, they they thought, oh, this is great, man. We should have you cover, you know, cryptozoology-related horror movies, you know, because there's constantly the whole, you know, Bigfoot's uh, in a lot of those horror movies. I'm like, well, sure, you know, and I can bring in the aspect of of the real research versus, you know, the Hollywood version of it and all. So so I started doing that, and and as I started looking for – subjects to write articles on, you know, I thought, man, what is my favorite subject, you know, and, and as a kid, I was the typical, when I was young, I saw the patterson Gimlin film, I saw The Legend of Boggy Creek, I was really young, I can't believe I can remember, you remember it, but I saw it at the drive-in when it was running down here in Texas, my parents took it to me, took me to it, and so I just always loved that film, it kind of hit, hit home for me because you know, living, I live only three, three hours away, uh, from Falk. I, I live between Fort Worth and Dallas. 
And uh, so it was very close. Um, I grew up hunting with my father, so we had been to every little podunk town. You know, we we hunted deer in all the woods from East Texas to West Texas, South Texas, camped in Arkansas. And so when I realized, man, you know, Bigfoot might not just be all the way, you know, across the U.S. in the Pacific Northwest or, or in snow-covered Himalayas, he might, you know, there might be a creature like that right here in my own backyard. So, you know, it just totally hooked me. So when I sat down to look for articles and I thought, man, Legend of Boggy Creek is awesome. And I, I literally just started looking and realized, man, nobody's written a book on this. I can't believe it. You know, the movie movie tagline is a true story. And so I thought, man, I want to know what was true. What, you know, now I'm an adult. What was really real about the movie? What was the history of the creature? Do people still see it today? Those are the questions I was asking, and uh, that's what I set out to maybe write an article, and I quickly realized this is no article. I mean, this is a book. There is so much cool stuff to this story that nobody's ever heard. I mean, you know, like you said, it's been mentioned in some books, you know, uh, Bigfoot books here and there, but they just mention the same two or three sightings. I mean, there's, you know, I've got 75 sightings chronicled in my book that were in the vicinity. So that's how little people have really gotten about the information so far. So that's how I came to write the book, and here here it is. There you go, yeah. And what I like especially about the book, too, is, uh, you know, obviously you, you use some news reports and stuff like that, but there's a lot of instances where you talk to key players in this story or relatives of the key players or people in the town, like you really have, there's a lot of first-hand information in the book, which is invaluable to people who are reading it, because it's not like we have to rely on these newspaper accounts, we don't know what was going on, that kind of thing, it's like, you, you went right to the source on a lot of this stuff, which is tremendous. Oh, yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, that that just needed to be done, you know, any time I could possibly find a, a first, you know, first-hand account, even if they're telling me what they heard their grandfather say, it was you know, helped me to uh, verify other tales and sort out kind of the timeline, what was what was really going on, because I, I did have, I've got about almost 80 articles from the Texarkana Gazette and other local papers, you know, which mention a lot of sightings, but I really wanted to see what I could do myself, and and I, you know, I, most of those happened in the 70s, so that gave me some good historical stuff. But as I went forward, especially as I got to the sightings in the 80s and the 90s, 2000s, I was interviewing these people firsthand, and this will be the first time uh, anybody's read of these sightings. Yeah, yeah. It's tremendous stuff. Like I said, I mean, it's invaluable stuff. Kudos to you for doing the legwork and actually going and finding some of these folks or the relatives of folks who aren't with us anymore. It's just tremendous information that could have been lost to the ages. So it's great that you uh, picked up the baton and really and ran with it. Now, I guess, you know, for the folks who are kind of new to this whole thing or, or jumping in, uh, well, obviously, we're at the very beginning of the conversation, but they're sort of jumping in at the very beginning of this whole thing. I guess sort of let's do a thumbnail, you know, look at the, at the Falk monster and the beast of Boggy Creek. Just give people a general idea of what this creature is and what, how I guess how it's been reported to be, if you will, how, what witnesses say this thing is and, and sort of like a little bit about the evolution of it. And we'll get into the specifics of it as we go along. Okay. You know, the, the basic descriptions uh, are roughly... Uh, seven foot tall, 
uh, hair-covered, man-like ape creature, uh, often said to have a foul odor. Um, You know, some people have gone so far as to give it descriptions of the face, you know, a dark brownish skin, flat nose. The hair is usually said to be longer on the top of the head. Um, You know, it's it's kind of... Close to Bigfoot sightings, of course, um, but it, it does have its own personality. You know, uh, you know, the hair seems to be a little longer. It seems to be a little leaner, meaner, you know, more um, like you would think comes from a swampy area, and that's what um, Balk is close to a lot of swampy areas there in Arkansas. And so naturally something living in this hot weather would probably be, you know, a little leaner than, than maybe a, a bulkier creature that would live in mountains or Pacific Northwest or, or what have you. So yeah. th- that's the basic description of it. Um, the way it came to everybody's attention was in 1971, there was some reports of it which got in the Texarkana Gazette, which uh, Texarkana is about 15 minutes from Falk, and that's the paper that covered all the region. And once those came into the paper, it kind of got it to everybody's attention, um, and that's what drew in the filmmaker Charles Pierce, who, who had been looking for the subject, uh, something to shoot a movie about. And he's like, he was living in Texarkana. He's like, man, this is perfect. I mean, right down the road, people are seeing a monster. And so that's what drew him in. He he made the movie. The movie he made the movie for one hundred sixty thousand dollars. It went on to be a huge success in the drive-in circuit internationally. Back in the 70s, it made $25 million. I mean, it was basically the, the Blair Witch Project or the paranormal activity of its day. Yeah. And that, that kind of made this cryptid more famous than your average, you know, your other cryptids that may be a little indigenous to locales. You know, they didn't really have the seminal movie. Uh, and then The Legend of Boggy Creek of of course, inspired a lot of cryptozoologists, um, sparked their interest. And, and so, you know, it's had an impact above and beyond be, because of the movie. But as well, the creature has a good history prior to the 70s as, as a Bigfoot creature that is plausible to exist in this area. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess one one last sort of background thing to get people uh you know, familiar with all this is talk about the terrain down there because I thought it was really interesting and chilling and spooky and weird and just sort of creepy as all hell. Just the, just uh, even the, the pictures are like, ooh, I wouldn't want to go to these places. They're, they're kind of <laughs> like chilling places. And then there's even some overhead shots where it's just so weird with these like rivers, like, they're not like straight rivers. They're like snaking around and, and sort of twisting all over the place. And it's like, yikes, I can, you know, if 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 this creature exists, it, it makes perfect sense that this is this is the kind of place where you would find it, and a place where nobody wants to go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's that's one thing that even I discovered. You know, I mean, I you know I'd been up there in those parts, but really when I started looking at in a serious investigative manner, uh, the little town of Falk, uh, like you said earlier, is it's right there, pretty much on the border of Texas. Uh, Arkansas, and then Louisiana is very close to there. So it's right in that hub, and it kind of sits in the middle of a huge, uh, uh, just a rich concentration of, of forest land in that area, a lot of swamps, 
as, as you can imagine, you know, you got Louisiana, people kind of picture that. Well, it, it kind of extends up in that area of Arkansas. And, uh, there's like, uh, there's like roughly a, a hundred thousand square miles of forestry, uh, up in that area. So it, it just sits in a good hub of, uh, where a lot of wild animals uh, can easily exist. Um, the Sulphur River, which you were talking about, uh, is what was snaking through there. And uh, the Sulphur River flows from the Red River and uh, flows off into some bayous down there. And all that ends up flowing down through East Texas and Louisiana and hitting the Mississippi. So they call that the Mississippi Water Web. And when you really start looking at the, the area, and I've got that cool aerial photo. Yeah. Uh, of the Sulphur River Wildlife Management Area with where the Mercer Bayou is. Dude, you look at that, and I've stood up on a hill and looked out across that. <laughs> there's no, you can't really develop it because it's sitting in a bog down there, and there's just not much you can do with it. It is just, uh, you know, a wildlife preserve, and, you know, it's not hard to imagine that, that something reclusive in small numbers could plausibly exist in there. It's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's tremendous. Certainly not some place you want to go if you're not someone who's used to the wilderness. So, you yeah, know, I, yeah, I wouldn't be getting in there. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely spooky. And I, know I, try to, I try to convey that in the book, you know, for people who've never been there. And, and definitely it's it's got a spooky vibe. And that's another cool thing. And what one reason the Legend of Boggy Creek works so well is really because it is a perfect place. I mean, if, you know, if it's a filmmaker would would dream of this place to try to create a movie, but this is a real, this is real, and you know, it's just sitting right there. Yeah. All right. Now let's kind of like we've, we've set the stage here for everybody, so we'll sort of dive into, you know, the lineage, if you will, of the Falk monster. I found it really interesting, and I'm sort of shifting my notes a little bit, and sort of shifting a little bit of the. Uh, order of, of, of the book so we can kind of t- keep it in a chronological way because you, you already touched on sort of the Falk monster fever, which we'll get into, which sort of exploded in the early 70s. But you do a great job in the book of conveying how to the people of the area, especially in the town of Jonesville, there was this sort of uh, wave, if you will, of preacher sightings in Jonesville, which is nearby Falk. And that didn't explode into the media at all. That that was sort of just well-known by the locals and stuff like that. And it seems to suggest that that we're talking about the same creature here, that, that, you know, what was seen in the 60s was seen in the 70s. And, of course, you know, there's reports, as you document in the book, that predate that, but they're a little more sporadic. And the 60s one seemed to be the first where this thing, for, for whatever reason, is in the area, if you will. Right. Yeah, and it, it's definitely, I mean, the same the same creature. The descriptions are all the same, and 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 that that's you know the fact that that was kind of going on prior to the whole media frenzy is just another thing that underscores to me that people were really seeing something uh, that they couldn't explain, you know, and and that was the cool part is when it in the seven in 1971 people people always tend to say oh yeah the the creature, the, the this famous incident, the Ford, the Ford house where the creature attacked him. That's kind of the the uh, premier sighting or whatever. But when that happened, 
the locals, you know, I got in the paper and, and the locals just said, hey, wait a minute, you know, this, this isn't the first time of all this. You know, we've been seeing this thing down in Jonesville for years. And yeah. that Jonesville is basically between Falk and the Sulphur River Wildlife Life Management and the bayous out there. So it's, you know, it's no doubt that it would, if something existed there, it'd be seen more often in Jonesville, and that was the case. And uh, so all those incidents in the 60s, um, there were some really good sightings. Um, but, yeah, they were circulated. People knew of it. I mean, people in Falk, everybody kind of knew of those things, but it wasn't something that the media was aware of, um, and it wasn't, you know, public. Then when they made the movie, I mean, they kind of mixed up the chronology of all of it, basically. So they kind of worked in the 60s and the 70s sightings as if all this kind of happened at once. Right. You know, there, I could, I found that these sightings are true sightings or, you know, reported sightings. Um, so, you know, it's just for the purposes of the movie, they had to kind of, you know, juggle it around so exactly yeah yeah that's kind of what we're trying to do here is untangle it a little bit so people can understand it's like there was this whole wave of sightings in the 60s and then then they spread to to Falk almost as if the creature had moved to that area so how far apart are these two areas uh, it's only about five miles oh okay yeah so that makes perfect sense then yeah it's you know um when you just Falk is a it's an interesting place. I mean, the main street that runs through there, there's no, um, I mean, there's really no, there's not a, like restaurants or anything. This, it's just a really, really small town. It's, it's 800 population, about 800 today. It was only, it was 500 back in, in the, uh, seventies. So it hadn't really grown much. And, uh, that's a remote area, and then if you go five miles towards the bayou, you know, there's Jonesville, and all that, even today, they only paved the roads, uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago down there, if that, maybe 10 years. Huh. It's, it's just a place with dirt roads, the houses are just, you know, sporadic, they're, they're out there in the middle of the, of the woods, so this is the kind of place where people were seeing it, you know, so people, you know, to give you an idea that when people think, oh, Falk, Arkansas, well, you know, it's it's basically just some uh, houses and some farm areas and and such. It, it's not a town like most people would even picture. Right, right. Yeah, it sounds like, but but in a way, you know, and credit to you from the book, it, in a way, it's like having finished the book, it's like, it becomes a destination for me. It's like, I want to go there. I want to check this place out now. Yeah, I think. I, you know, it's it's funny. I've, I've had a lot of feedback. People like, man, I'm I'm headed up there. I mean, I was up there at the little store, the Monster Mart. People have been coming in there, you know, because they've read the book. And people always have been going down there. But, uh, yeah, I think they expect a little bit more people, you know, visiting the area because, once you've read the book, you know, wow, you, you really have the visual of it. You want to see it. Yeah, yeah. Now, for the folks who dig the stories, why don't you share the uh, the Lynn Crabtree sighting? Because that seemed like a critical one from the 60s era Jonesville uh, wave, if you will. Okay, uh, yeah, and that that was kind of what drew the Crabtree family into all this. Yeah. Uh, and 
basically, uh, this is 1965, um, Lynn's father, Smokey, they, they had some land out there in Jonesville and they had actually created their own lake. It's called Crabtree Lake. It's on the map. Um, and he was out, Lynn was 14 at the time. And I mean, these kind these kids that grew up out there, they, they probably were hunting as, as soon as they could walk. I mean, they were, they were very skilled hunters. They were familiar with every creature that lived in the woods. And in most cases, uh, especially even for Smokey, when he was growing up, to feed their family, they had to uh, hunt. You know, they were they ate squirrels, they ate uh, deer, a rabbit, whatever. I mean, this was a part of their life. So, so Lynn was out squirrel hunting this particular evening, and as the sun was going down, he was sitting up by uh, their lake. Uh, he's kind of leaned up against a tree, sitting down, and he kind of nodded off. And he began to hear some horses running. And, you know, they got started getting closer and closer. And thinking, man, you know, there was some, you know, some of the neighbors had some wild horses that ran down there. So no big deal. Um, but they could see that they were kind of in a, you know, in a panic or something. They ended up running up and running into the lake. And he could hear some, some noise, like some kind of screeching or howling or something going on. Uh, which he first thought was a dog, but as as the horses panic, he he kind of thought, well, maybe whatever, something's chasing him or or something, you know. And uh, so by now, you know, he gets up and, uh, like I said, he'd been kind of drifting off. And once he stood up and kind of started looking around, he saw then what was the source of the horse's panic and the horses had just run out in the water uh lynn was about uh 30 or 40 feet from this creature which he described as uh you know an upright uh hairy man basically that was his first impression that it was some kind of a wild man uh it had long hair all over its body you know seven feet tall uh, its face was dark, flat nose, um, hair was covering its eyes. So, of course, he's thinking, man, you know, this is scary. And he, he holds up the gun and, uh, you know, in an attempt to scare away the person or whoever it was. And they, they of course, didn't respond to that. And the creature starts walking towards him. And uh, he just basically panics and fires. He's, he's, I think he had a 20-gauge. He fires his gun three times at it and then just took off running for the house. <laughs> and uh, by now it was, the sun was, um, you know, almost uh, beyond the horizon. It was dark and the kid was in a total panic. He, you know, he wasn't sure if he hit the thing or what. He just took off running. So when he gets to the house, uh, it just so happened that the crab trees had some guests over. And this story probably would have never even got out had these people not been there, but they all saw Lynn come in uh, all frazzled, and they had heard the three shots. Um, Smokey does write about this in his book, of course, you know, as part of his family, so there's a pretty good account there, and I've heard him tell the story as well. Yeah. Um, when Lynn came in, everybody, you know, you could visually see that he, the kid was in a panic, and he told them of what he saw, you know, everybody's like, 
oh my gosh, you know, this is crazy. So they, Smokey and everybody went went down to the area and looked around for evidence and they didn't see the creature. Um, and they spent several days uh, trying to track it and to lure it in with rabbit calls and other things. Um, and of course, since there was some guests over, I think they told they told somebody, and of course, word leaked out. And of course, by now everybody's asking about it. And you know, Lynn's friends kind of ribbed him a lot about it. Um, but his sighting was important in this whole thing because um, he was a well-liked boy. You know, he wasn't apt to make up stories. You know, he was just a good kid. And he was definitely familiar with wildlife and would be hard for this guy, you know, to mistake, you know, a, a bear or a cougar or anything else for an upright, hairy ape, you know. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, you touched on two critical aspects of that story, which is, A, he was well-versed in the wilderness, so he wouldn't make this kind of mistake, and B, you know, this all predates sort of uh, the frenzy that surrounded the Falk monster in the 70s, and it's like, as you point out in the book, and there were a, a number of sightings in the 60s in Jonesville, but considering there wasn't this big frenzy, it stands to reason that there would be no reason, I, I apologize for the double word there, for people to create this story. I mean, the, the idea, you know, the, 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 the often used sort of skeptical response is, you know, they're, they're making it up for attention or something like that. That's the complete opposite of what these people wanted or really were aiming for. You know, it sounded like from your depiction of these stories from the 60s, at least, that, you know, they didn't want any attention. They, they kept this quiet. This was kind of hush-hush. This was like talked about maybe after a couple of beers or something like that, when you're just sitting around or in, in whispers in the back room and that kind of stuff. This wasn't like, you know, people were running around telling everybody about their amazing sighting of, of the uh, of the hairy hominid, if you will. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and these people had never heard of Bigfoot. They didn't know what that was. You know, this was before the Patterson film. They didn't have TVs. They did not even know what Bigfoot was, and you're exactly right. They They definitely did not want this getting out. And... Another thing that's important about Lynn's sighting is that once, you know, because they had some neighbors over that saw the kid come in, you know, uh, in such a panic and saw firsthand how scared he was, you know, they told other people. And that's kind of what brought up some other stories like, well, hey, you know, I saw something strange down there. I didn't want to say anything. Uh, so Lynn's kind of was a catalyst to bring forward a lot of the other tales. Yeah. Some of it in an attempt to make the boy feel better because, you know, <laughs> now he feels isolated. He, you know, why did I have to be the one that saw this? He definitely didn't want to. And he never spoke about it again. Uh, he, he didn't want any part of the movie. You know, people, you know, kids at school made fun of him or whatever. This is definitely not something he made up for attention. He, he wanted none of it. He never spoke about the incident in public ever. See, so. yeah, that's powerful. That's important. Like, you know, to the to the skeptics, it's, you know, they always sort of rely on that as an out. But it's like, this this kid didn't want anything to do with this thing. You know, this was like something that happened to him that he would rather it hadn't. Oh, yeah. And not, you know, in talking to and knowing a lot of the people that live in this area, and, uh, you know, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people with, with different Bigfoot sightings, and there's a definite difference between, uh, so, you know, a rural a person living in a rural area that's a, a hunter and a and 
going about their business and some weekend warrior Bigfoot guy who's driving, you know, to a state park and says he saw something, you know, peeking out behind the tree. I mean, these are two totally different things. These are, uh, you know, to me, they just are much more um, solid sightings, you know, in my opinion. Right, right. It adds a whole layer of credibility that that is critical to the whole story. And then another story that's from the 60s, Jonesville Flap, if you will, uh, that, the, that you point out as particularly significant is from this musician, Carl Finch, who was driving through the area, and he saw the creature as well. And what's important about his case is that he wasn't even from the area. He hadn't even heard about this sort of local hysteria that had been going on. So there's no way he could have been influenced at all by all the talk, if you will, that was going on in the town about these sightings. So we add another layer of sort of intrigue to this whole thing. Because, I mean, it's one thing to sort of pass them off and be like, well, everyone was talking about it, so everyone was kind of worried about it. But then it's like, no, but this guy had no idea what was going on, and he saw it. And there's other cases in the book of that sort of instance happening as well. So it, we're not just talking about a wave of locals seeing this thing. We're talking about, on occasion, people from the outside going through also see the creature, right? Oh, exactly. I mean, that just, I mean, it was beautiful the way that he, Carl's sighting corroborated everything that was going on in the time. And it wasn't really till I put all this timeline together and told Carl that I said, do you realize your sighting, unbeknownst to you, was, you know, right smack in the middle of when all that stuff was going on in Jonesville. He didn't even know what Jonesville was, you know. I mean, <laughs> he, had, he had no idea. I mean, he'd seen the legend of Boggy Creek, and it wasn't until he saw that in the 70s that he even put it together that, wow, maybe I saw that thing back in the 60s. So, yeah, he was coming from a totally different angle and coincidentally saw a creature that, by his description, was almost the same thing as the uh, residents yeah. were seeing. So it, it was, yeah, it just was, it's spooky almost the way that worked together. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and this, this, you know, as we're going along here, this case is strengthening here for something very strange going on out there in the woods. And then from from the 60s flap, we get into the, the, the Falk Monster Mania, which is when the creature gets his name, uh, the Falk Monster, which I find is interesting because they, they don't want anything really to, <laughs> to, they seem like they're not big fans of being, uh, you know, tied into that whole thing. But I guess we've touched on it a couple times here in the conversation. And again, for the folks who love the stories, why don't you sort of talk about, you know, the, if you will, the Roswell of the Falk Monster, the story that kicks off the whole insanity of it all, which is the May 3rd, 1971 newspaper report, which covers, you know, this really strange encounter. This isn't just like someone saw this thing. This is like a whole interaction, possible attack, if you will, uh, that ends up with someone in the hospital. So, I mean, this is a, a tremendous sighting of, across the board of any any of the of the cryptids, if you will, any, you know, Bigfoot, Yeti, whatever. This is This stands with all of them as one of the better cases out there. Yeah, this, uh, this sort of, you know, had everything in, in, in one, uh, encounter and this, this sort of gave the creature his reputation for being dangerous, um, and in what propelled him to have a media, uh, fame, if you will. Uh, this is, uh, it's called the Ford sighting or the Ford incident because this happened to a, a family, uh, by the last name of Ford and, this was uh, 
in May of 71. They were newcomers to the town, and they came there for work, and they rented a house which was kind of on the north end of Falk, if you will, um, which is basically still within arm's reach of the woods, you know, anywhere you live there, especially back then. So uh, they lived there a week or so, and, and they began to hear something prowling around on the porch at night. And uh, this is portrayed in the movie. It's kind of the climax scene of The Legend of Boggy Creek. So if people have seen that, will kind of have a vision of what's going on here, and it's fairly accurate. Um, but but they were the guys would be away at night on, at work, um, you know, some of the nights, and they would they would hear something prowling out there, and uh, and it seemed like a large animal. Um, they got you know a brief glimpse of it. It was hairy, and in one instance, it actually put its hand through an open window, and they Elizabeth Ford uh, described it as a hairy hand or a paw. And they definitely saw it. It was a real creature. It came through the, you know, through the window. And so as these incidents progressed, you know, they were becoming really frightened. And, you know, the girls were upset and, uh, they, you know, asked the landlord for a gun. And it all culminated on a, on a Saturday night in which, uh, again, the creature was prowling around and they got a, uh, a look at it and they, they believed it to be some kind of upright creature, tall, hairy, big. And so by this time, you know, they decided we've had enough of this. I don't know what this thing is, but we're going outside. And so, uh, Charles Taylor and, and Don Ford and, uh, Don's brother, uh, Bobby, uh, they all went outside and was, you know, looking around and saw the thing and took shots at it. Uh, with their shotgun and um, it was pretty dark at night you know they didn't have a lot of supplies or flashlights or lights or any fancy stuff I mean these people just didn't have a lot they had just moved here they're from out of town they didn't have a lot of belongings so you know people say well why couldn't they see it out there in the woods well it's dark it's woods they didn't have you know good equipment right they don't Um, have floodlights and things like that this is a you know rural yeah yeah, I mean, they're just kind of dealing with it as best they, best they can. And so basically, uh, as they started firing upon the creature, uh, it disappeared from view. And Bobby Ford just got so freaked out by seeing this thing, he, he had had enough. So he, uh, he started heading back towards the house. And the house sets, sits up a few, several feet off the ground. So you had to climb up a ladder to actually get on the porch. I mean, it was... Uh, the stairs, I guess, were gone. It was just a ladder. So as he's heading back towards the house, away from the only light they even had, he was in darkness, and something came at him as he was uh, going up that ladder. And what he what he said was, a hairy hand grabbed me. <laughs> and And so he tangles with this thing, you know, stumbles up the ladder, and he's so scared, he just literally puts his hand right through the, the door, uh, the window glass of the door. In the movie, they show him jumping through the door, which is dramatic, but nonetheless, he did uh, put his hand through the door, tried to get inside, and just got in, shut the door, and by now, after he had basically tangled with this creature, uh, 
he was in such a panic and shock that uh, they decided he needed to go to the hospital. So they they packed up and took him to uh, about 15 minutes away to the Texarkana Hospital. And the entire time they're driving, they had to hold him down in the back seat. He was trying to kick the windows out. He was in a total uh, hysterics, basically. Yes. And so, you know, they get to the hospital and, and they treat him for um, shock and scratches and other injuries. And of course, now we've got a we've got a guy who's in obvious state of panic down at a hospital. Of course, the news is going to get out now. Yeah. And so the doctor called one of the local uh, radio guys and said, hey, man, I've got a guy down here who says he was attacked by a big, hairy monster in Falk, and he is absolutely, uh, truly in shock, you know, and, and I mean, they said, I mean, he peed his pants, the whole, the whole deal. I mean, there was no <laughs> faking. I mean, I don't mean to laugh at that. I just, <laughs> well, it was great. I mean, you know, in the movie, they show him sitting on the toilet. So Bobby gets this whole, yeah, the whole toilet and wrap, but, but oh, it, you know, poor guy. But he did pee his pants and perhaps more. I don't know. I can't remember. But uh, <laughs> some things are best left to speculation. Yes, yes. Use your own imagination at that <laughs> point. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, like, you know, the next day, uh, you know, the authorities, the the news guys, a journalist Jim Powell from the Texarkana Gazette goes down there and investigates this whole thing and the you know the, the family affords tell him what had been taking place uh the prior nights and what they had seen and that they shot at it and that's basically what they put in the paper it says family attacked by a hairy monster and that comes out in the paper just in a flat you know here it is it was they didn't you know the journalist didn't make fun of it or, or anything it just stated the facts according to what these people said. So naturally, when that hit the Texarkana Gazette, I mean, everybody's like, what? And it just right then started sparking a whole hysteria. People were driving down there trying to look at the Ford property. I mean, they they had traffic jams, um, you know, and that that sort of became the cornerstone of the sightings, like you said. And and it's, it's a great one. I mean, not often that people end up in the hospital because of a Bigfoot, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go back to this whole idea that, like, these people, why would this guy want to make up a story where he, where that culminates in him pissing his pants and having to go to the hospital, uh, you know, out of fear? So it's like, you know, like, if you're going to make up some story, you make up, you know, you make up a penthouse letter. You don't make up a story about, <laughs> about, yeah. about you know, having to defecate yourself because the Bigfoot chased you, so... Oh yeah, yeah. You, you can make a. You need better PR if that's your story. So yeah, exactly. It was, uh, it was no doubt the guy. I mean, you know, you, you, there's no way to prove what he saw, but there is absolutely no doubt that he believed what he saw, and he saw something. You know. Right, right. And then, as, as you note in the book, then these stories, you know, more stories start to follow in the newspaper. They get picked up nationally. And then this becomes sort of like a, like a national story where people are talking about what the hell's going on down in Arkansas with these weird creatures. And I, what I thought was really interesting and just chilling and sort of, uh, I wouldn't say scary in the sense that like it's like a horror movie scary, but just sort of scary and like a, like a, oh no, someone's going to get hurt situation is that 
these radio stations and stuff start putting out bounties on the monster, and then you got all these people coming down there with guns, with dreams of riches, and it's a wonder no one got killed in the process of this whole frenzy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was all kinds of yahoos running around down there in the woods, uh, hunting for the monster that, you know, the, the radio station put out like $10,000 rewards, uh, for this thing. And it quickly got out of hand because FALP doesn't even have their own police department. They, they rely on the Miller County Sheriff's Office to provide, uh, you know, police, uh, coverage in their jurisdiction so that they can't even really deal with this i mean it's a town of 500 people i mean they estimated that over time there was probably more than 500 outsiders down there that had come down there to either look for the thing or to try to run out in the woods and and kill it uh, I, t- I talked to people who said they would get up several people lived close to boggy creek said they would just look out their window and there'd be people camped all over their front yard. Oh, God. I mean, it was just, it was just totally crazy. And I, I don't think people, it's hard to imagine something like that going on these days. I mean, because, you know, everybody's heard about these kind of things, but back then it was really a, in the way that the news kind of just reported it, hey, a family sees a ape-like creature run across Highway 71 near Boggy Creek. Uh, they said it looked like kind of a monkey uh, man or something. I mean, you know, so it it was somewhat of a time of innocence, and and uh, it scared a lot of people and intrigued a lot of people. And like you say, it was people, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends, you know, said, my, yeah, my my dad went up there trying to hunt that thing on weekends, you know, <laughs> get a twelve pack of bud and go monster hunting, and <laughs> that was what they did. Right, right. And then, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like shooting shooting down some of these skeptical theories in a way as I go along. And let's throw out another one here. Well, it's a guy in a suit. Well, you know, with that kind of influx of hunters and with the fallibility of human beings in, in suits, it would stand to reason that some moron would, would end up getting pinged at some point, you know, and revealed to be a guy in a suit. Just that's my opinion, oh, at least, don't you think? Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, for sure. And you would figure... Anybody who is, you know, doing all this and wearing a suit would have to be a local. I mean, it's not like some guy from, you know, another city drove down there every other week to to run around. So, and it's totally out of the question that a local would do this because they all know better because they all know who lives there. And everybody down there had had a gun in the back of their pickup. These are all hunters. There's, you know, you'd have to be out of your mind especially back then, to decide you're going to dress up like uh, in a gorilla costume and run down there across Highway 71 by Boggy Creek because, uh, you know, the animal could could quickly disappear down in those uh, ravines because it can run in the dark and and get away quickly. A a human, you know, you just, you'd end up falling down and they just jump out and shoot you. I mean, right, right. Yeah, you fall, you twist your ankle, and next thing you know, you're done. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was no, there was no pro kill, no no kill debate going on in Falk. If you were a threatening animal, or you know, you, there's no second thought. Yeah, it would have taken you down. So, certainly not hoaxers. Yeah, exactly. And then during this this frenzy uh, is is the discovery, I guess you could say, of probably the best 
physical evidence that we know about, although still quite controversial, and that's the um, the three-toed prints. Right, right. It was only uh, about three weeks, I think, after the Ford incident when they found a, a trackway going across a soybean field near Boggy Creek, uh, which is right there pretty much in Falk. And uh, the tracks went about 150 yards um, across the field. They were... They measured about 13 and a half inches long, about uh, five inches wide, and they had the peculiar distinction of having three toes. And that wasn't the first time the Ford, at the Ford incident. The uh, constable noted that he thought he saw tracks that had three toes. Okay, and yeah. so when, when now we have actual tracks that they very good tracks now that have three toes, and that's what inspired the whole Falcon Monster has three toes thing. Um, but yeah, those those cat those were investigated by all the police officials, Miller County, um, uh, the news reporters. Everybody saw those tracks, so they were a, that was kind of a major point there in the Falcon Monster mania. Right, right, and it, and as you, I noticed this, and you kind of come back to it at the end of the book, which is which is awesome because it's always great when I pick up a little note sort of at the beginning of the book, and it and it comes up later on because uh, it feels like I'm on the same wavelength as the author. But the, the three-toed prints do come up over and over and over again. It seems this is one of the more defining, unique characteristics of this creature that we've that we've seen here is that you know if we see prints, they're very likely to be three-toed prints. Right, that seems to be a popular theory, but, you know, there's a lot of problems, not just with the Falk monster, but, you know, in Bigfoot research as a whole about, you know, the, the possibility that, that something would even have three toes. It's just not, it's not necessarily a, nat- uh, a natural evolution, not out of the question, you know, and I talk, I've talked to different people with different opinions, you know, uh, and I'm kind of constantly modifying my thoughts on it, but, um, you know, those, that particular trackway that was so defined, I'm, I'm not totally 100% sure that was not, <clears throat> you know, that was legit or not. I don't know, but, uh, most of the sightings don't have footprint evidence or they did, or people didn't note it. So. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and one thing I learned that, uh, John Green, uh, Bigfoot researcher, well known, uh, has pointed out that a lot of times if it has five toes or something else, people don't, maybe just don't remark on it, you know, but if it, if they see something that appears to have three toes, then typically, yeah, it's weird and so they're going to say something about it. So it's not that some other people didn't find some other strange tracks, they just didn't get reported, you know. That's true, yeah, I didn't think of that, but that's totally true, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of aspects, but uh, I did find a guy who has a pretty good five-toed track from uh, 2004, I believe. Um, And so, you know, uh, and nobody's really seen that track till my book, and it it was a pretty decent track, and this is a, a good, honest, credible guy with a good story, and uh, he didn't have a direct sighting, but but he's uh, uh, it, it was strange circumstances in which he found these tracks. Um, 
and they're definitely plausible. So there's a five-toed track. So you're like, well, so does he have three or five toes? You know, hard to say. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to get a gauge on that kind of thing, you know, because you just never know. I mean, I got a buddy whose one toe, like, curls over the other. So it's like, who knows? Maybe the creature's like that. You just sure. don't know. Yeah, just impossible really to tell. So, but, you know, in most people's minds, Bout Monster has three toes. So, hey, that's cool. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's sort of like the, the frenzy. And then that leads to the film, which is Legend of Boggy Creek, which I have personally not seen, although I just checked on Netflix before the interview, and it is available on Netflix. So I'm going to have to have them send that to me to check out. So I guess talk, because I'm sure a lot of the listeners have seen the film or heard of the film, and surprisingly, uh, Lauren Coleman, who wrote the foreword, mentioned a whole bunch of cryptozoologists who... Uh, who, you know, were inspired by the film. And he didn't mention one that is going to be on the program soon, uh, Neil Arnold. In his official bio, he says that he was inspired by the legend of Boggy Creek. That's like the first thing that got him interested in all this. So it seemed to have been a catalyst for a lot of people to eventually sort of take up cryptozoology. So talk a little bit about the movie and, you know, how it was a really, that's a really cool part of the book, too, because it's sort of, it's like a double biography, if you will. It's like a biography on the Beast of Boggy Creek, and it's also sort of like, you know, a making of the legend of Boggy Creek, which is just as fascinating, really, as the creature itself, because you just can't imagine the the, uh, the gorilla style of filmmaking like that back in the 1970s. It really was pretty tremendous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I found that very interesting when I, when I researched back how the movie was made, and I, I you know, I thought... Yeah, it makes my book kind of like part cryptozoology, part horror film history or something, you know. Uh, But that's kind of the way the creature, you know, has been exposed. So it was perfect to lay out everything that went on. And and, uh, nobody's really ever covered either aspect. So, So I definitely wanted to devote a chapter to not only telling how Charles Pierce, uh, you know, was inspired to make the movie, but just how in the hell did he do it uh, on such a small budget and being a first-time filmmaker? And then, uh, you know, what was what was real about the movie and what was, you know, entertainment purposes? So I sort that out, and it's, I think, of course, people who love the movie, this is, you know, the first, wow, they finally get to, uh, they've asked these same questions I've asked, so now they'll be answered. And if, if people haven't seen the movie, it just gives you a whole background that when you watch it, you have a, uh, a much deeper appreciation for it. Um, but, you know, basically the, uh, when all that stuff was going on, people were, you know, being put in the hospital by the monster. I mean, Charles Pierce, uh, was doing a, a advertising agency in Texarkana, and he's he's reading the papers like everybody else, and he's like, "Man, this is crazy! You know what is going on down there in Falk?" So, uh, you know, he he convinced uh, a local businessman to loan him some money so he could uh, get a camera and go down there and just start filming. And he started out kind of thinking he was going to do a documentary, um, but ended up, you know, making it a feature film which actually works for the movie because it looks so much like a documentary. And that's what scared people. Like when I saw it as a kid, I was thinking, how did they get a camera down there while this lady was actually seeing this thing in the woods? (laughs) I didn't understand. I thought, I thought it was part of a documentary. And 
I mean, this was like, I mean, it was like found, what they call found footage yeah. horror movies. I mean, it was amazing. And, and Charles Pierce is, I mean, it's hugely underrated uh, for his achievement on this. I mean, he was, no pun intended, a guerrilla filmmaker. You know, I know, uh, you know, I can, I know 20 people right now who are often trying to make their own zombie movies and, and so forth on, you know, using their own computer software and everything else, which is a huge advantage Charles Pierce didn't have. But he was a guy who just said, hey man, I'm gonna make a movie by myself. I don't need Hollywood. I don't need nothing else. I just need a camera. I got a perfect story. It's truly frightening. And so he just went down to the town and started ta- interviewing the, the locals and uh, seeing who would share their stories and who was willing to act them out on camera. Uh, he got Smokey Tra- Crabtree to like be a guide who would take him back in the Mercer Bayou so he could shoot all the, the swamp footage, which is just amazing footage unto itself, you know. And And so... By having the townspeople help him out, you know, it just, it's authentic looking and he just did an amazing job of kind of structuring the film and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of cheesy looking parts today and some cheesy singing and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah, but it was the 70s. Yeah, you, you gotta kind of picture the time that it happened and, uh, but most people that I say, man, People always come up, hey, I heard you wrote a book on about Bigfoot. I'll say, well, it's not exactly about Bigfoot. It's the Bigfoot creature. But I say, have you ever seen the, the old movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek? And, you know, 90% of the time they say, oh, yeah, scared the, scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Everybody says that. I mean, it's like they're quoting out of the same book. Said, <laughs> yeah. Huh, I'm surprised you said that. But, uh, but yeah, and, and so... The movie was just such a hit back then, and it, and that's anybody with an interest in, you know, the intrigue and, and mystery of these kind of creatures like Lauren Coleman and all these other guys, uh, man, it just fueled the fire, and they were pumped up to get out into their own backyards, wherever they may live, and and look for strange and undocumented creatures. So the movie had a huge effect on uh, a lot of these, you know, I don't want to say old-timers. I mean, I'm not that old, but I just saw it when I was a kid, and there's been, you know, it was on video for years. So you have a wide range of ages that actually remember the movie. Um, and they made some subsequent sequels, which are mostly suck, you know. <laughs> part of the, you know it's part of the history, and I, I document that as they happen in relation to the history of this whole thing. But... Um, but yeah, I dedicate a lot in the book to the just the making of it. And like you said, it's just it's real fascinating. Uh, just just I got a lot of Charles Pierce's words. He's no longer with us, but uh, I, I dug up some really good old interviews, and I also worked with uh, his daughter uh, when I was researching the book. So that was uh, that helped me quite a bit to try to sort out the pieces of this puzzle. You know? Yeah, yeah. What well, a lot of people who may have seen the movie um, may not realize is that you know most you can correct me if I'm wrong here but I'm pretty sure I'm right because I, I I'm, I'm looking at the book here but uh, you know most of the events in the film you know with a, maybe a little bit of artistic license actually are reported cases from you know the uh, the folk monster Jonesville monster flap so I mean for anyone who's like 
heard of the movie or seen the movie a long time ago and thinks that, like, this, you know, the guy heard the one story and then just went and made up a bunch of little side stories, you know, to sort of flesh it out. That's not the case. He actually went and talked to people almost like you did and, and then, you know, turned them into sort of, like, fictionalized versions for the film. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people were under the impression that, oh, yeah, a lot, that's, you know, a lot of that was made up. It was cool, but it was made up. And and I was even surprised to find uh, that most everything in there is based on a real sighting report. You know, some of those had been in the newspaper. And, you know, of course, you had the Smoky Crabtree's uh, son and, and those stories. And uh, some of him, some of these he mentions in some of his memoirs. So I was able to kind of, you know, double double check these things with, with what Smokey is documented, and and so yeah, I was really surprised at how much of the movie is actually based on real sightings. I mean, it makes it even kind of more spooky, really. Yeah, they add in they you know he adds in a good amount of dramatization, which, which is great. But uh, at the core of it, bottom line, the, these people were seeing something really creepy and unexplained down there uh, in this part of the country. Right, right. There was once a great American named George Henderson. He met a woodland ape or Sasquatch, and despite its dangerous message of environmentalism, became his friend. But when the time came to do the hard thing and send it back into the forest where it belonged, and birds could perch on its shoulder because it was gentle, George Henderson summoned the strength, and by God, he did it. Did it hurt? You bet it hurt. Like a bastard. But he did it because it was the right thing to do. For the Woodland Ape. You think about that. What? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Is that Harry and the Hendersons? You've seen it. This is my life, Jack. I thought it was an interesting sort of, uh, and, and but not altogether unsurprising turn of events then. The movie becomes a huge success. And Smokey, who was like a critical part of sort of facilitating a lot of the local aspect of it, as well as the people in Folk who uh, either participated in the movie or even people who were just affected by the influx of tourists who wanted to see the area, I, I, I got the impression they sort of felt slighted by all this and kind of taken advantage of because this became like a huge hit and Charles Pierce kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of like just took the money and ran. You know, he was like, this is a great success, but he, he never really kind of turned around and helped these people out or, or repaid anybody uh, as far as, you know, there weren't like residuals or anything for any of these folks, right? Right. Yeah, and that that was unfortunate. And, uh, you know, Smokey has been the most outspoken person about that. He actually uh, sued Charles Pierce um for some some money that he felt was owed um that court case went on and on and and Smokey was really mad about it and rightly so in, in a lot of regards i mean but some of the some of the people in the town you know was like hey cool i'm in a movie they didn't care i mean and i think the mayor was quoted as saying you know nobody really expected anything to happen with it i mean it's great that it did but Nobody, I mean, this is a, a guy who's never made a movie, uh, you know, about a, a Bigfoot creature. I mean, nobody really expected anything to happen. They, they just underestimated it would become a phenomenon like it did. And so 
you know, once money starts playing into the picture, of right. course, you know, some people are like, hey, man, we should have got money. And, you know, I see both sides. I mean, Charles, Charles Pierce is the one that just took it, took, you know, picked up the camera and went down there and did it. And, I mean, he was in debt over $100,000 by the time it was all said and done before he had put the movie out. You know, in this local, I mean, a local businessman down in Texarkana, you know, you need to pay this, you need to pay them back. This is, <laughs> these are rough dudes. I mean, they are not playing around. <laughs> yeah. And Charles Pierce, I mean, he was, he was sweating it big time. And, you know, he kind of won the lottery in a way on this thing. And I really think he should have donated some money to the town of Falk. That, that's really a shame that he didn't, but I can't speak for the guy. I don't know how much right. money changed hands exactly or whatever. So, I just, I'm coming at it from a fan's point of view and, and I, I, you know, I just look at Pierce's achievement, but also document Falk and their troubles with this and, and everything. And, and, and that's understandable as well. It was just a, just a crazy thing, the whole, the whole deal. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, like I said, it's unsurprising that, you know, when it becomes an unexpected hit, then it becomes acrimonious between all parties involved. Because you know, as as yeah. like you said, the mayor, I think he said something along the lines of like this. You know, this is a movie made by a guy who's never made a movie, funded by a guy who's never funded a movie, and acted in by actors by people who've never even been in a movie. So it was like, who who would have thought that this thing would have turned out to be so huge anyway? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, I found that in my, you know, as I've gotten to know a lot of folks up there. I really haven't found anybody that's been too angry about it. Uh, you know, the younger generation is, seems always proud. You know, my grandfather was in the movie or, you know, um, you know, my brother wore the suit or, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a source of pride for people. I mean, you know, Falk, it seems like I kind of have a love hate thing going with, with this whole fame and, and well, not so much fortune <laughs> of it. And, uh, so, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of social aspects to it, sociology and intrigue. It, it's, it's, it's got it all. Yeah, well, I guess talk a little bit about that, because that's something interesting, because, you know, you, folk has a sort of interesting, you know, place amongst these towns and cities that, that have become paranormal hubs, if you will, you know, like Roswell or Point Pleasant, you know. How does the town feel about being you know, a destination point for the paranormal, because they're certainly not, you know, the size of, of Roswell or, or Point Pleasant. You said there's 800 people there now. So it's like that's an even more paradoxical situation here where it's, do they have, you know, like a festival or anything like that, or are they kind of low-key about it? Well, they do. They have had a a, a Boggy Creek um, festival that they've had off and on. Uh, it it kind of, it, it struck me, you know, I've been up to Falk, you know, I went up there several years back and I'm trying to look around to see what there might be. And, you know, it's not totally apparent at first, you know, there's no big, there's not a lot of big signs and, and so forth. There's, there's a place called the Monster Mart and that's really the only thing. They have a mural of, of the creature on the wall. And, uh, I went in there, you know, there's some newspaper clippings hanging on, uh, on the wall, it, it just was sort of like, well, uh, it wasn't a big tourist operation or anything. So they haven't, you know, whereas you look at Roswell and you see 
all kinds of shops with aliens and, uh, you know, they just milk it for all they can. And it's fun. That's great. Uh, Falk hasn't really done that. I mean, some, some people have tried to make good on it in the seventies, like a gas station owner, Willie Smith, you know, he made, he made a lot of Falk monster trinkets and I've heard he, he's made it, he made a lot of money on that and that was great. And then, you know, a lot of people just, you know, a lot of people are just like, ah, there's no such thing as a monster and they just carry on with their daily life, you know? Yeah. So you, you get from all sides, but I, I have noticed that since I've been going up there and stirring up interest in this whole thing and I, I've, uh, I went in there recently and in this little monster mart, uh, the owner, uh, had made a whole new room and a whole new display. They painted a fat monster on the wall, put some like spooky trees in there. Oh, nice. Uh, I was like, wow. And then they're like, well, you know, you should do a book signing here. And so, um, uh, like, well, yeah, yeah, it'd be great. So I, I've seen a little bit of a spark of interest. So I think the fat monster comes and goes in waves and, uh, I think at this point, you know, they're they're kind of embracing the whole thing, and you know, at least from what I can tell, people are happy, and a lot of people are. I've heard that a lot of people are excited about the book, um, so that that's really cool. Was the renovation at the Monster Mart inspired by your depiction of it in the book, where you said that it was just like a like a bulletin board with some fading newspaper articles on there, or had they, had they not read that part yet? Funny thing, they haven't. They hadn't read the book. Uh, <laughs> They they did this of their own accord. Oh, you know? good. So I thought, yeah, that's great. I mean, so uh, I, I've since given a copy to the owner of the Monster Mart, and my book signing is coming up. So, uh, well, by the time people hear this, it'll have happened. But, um, but I, I felt, you know, I, I as a as a guy who just is a fanboy about, you know the Falk monster and the whole phenomenon and who's spent hours and hours researching all this stuff in libraries and, you know, out there in the woods, it's kind of an honor for me that I could even play a significant part in the history of this and inspire people to uh, be proud of it. So it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in a lot of ways... What you're doing is tremendous because it separates sort of the fact from the fiction. Because as you point out in the book and as we've talked about here, you know, the movie is a double-edged sword. I mean, it inspires a lot of people. It gets people excited about cryptozoology. It makes them want to look into this. But also, on a, on a micro level, it sort of gives people and, and skeptics the license to say wrongly that, oh, it was all just a movie and, and then dismiss it, when that's not the case at all. Right, I'm, and I'm glad that's going to be out so that people can get the whole picture because, uh, yeah, the people just really only know the, t the proverbial tip of the iceberg in this case, I think, and and so I'm really, I'm really glad that I can just you know get it out there to people who are interested and want to know and who want to know a cool story and and uh, I feel like. That's a good contribution to, to the, you know, to the Bigfoot world as a whole, really. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's interesting too that we've we've sort of dropped the B word here over the course of of this conversation. But I, I found it interesting, and you point out they didn't even have any idea about Bigfoot. And it's interesting too that you know, like in all the the sighting reports and 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 stuff like that throughout the book, 
you know, maybe up until like the later ones that are mentioned in the book. Like, you, you just don't see, this thing isn't described as a Bigfoot. Not like, you know, it's described like a Bigfoot, but it's not described as a Bigfoot. People aren't saying, oh, I saw a Bigfoot. They're just saying they saw this creature, which makes, I think, even more potent as far as something worthy of looking at. Because we're, this isn't a small town where they're like, hey, let's invent our own Bigfoot. It's like, no, dude, they, they just have their own Bigfoot, you know, and unbeknownst to them. And later on, you know, when, in this modern age, we can kind of start to put the pushpins in the map and draw the lines, and we're like, okay, well, we got another Bigfoot down here. Right. And I, I kind of intentionally wrote the book in a, in a way to treat the creature as as separate as I could. Right. You know, acknowledging that, of course, it could be part of a more universal species of something, which we collectively call Bigfoot. But, but yeah, I tried to paint a picture of it, of, of, of it unto itself so that it, it was kind of what I had always envisioned. It, it was unique and, uh, it was a creature that I didn't want people to put a lot of preconceived mental images of Bigfoots and apply that just to to the fountain monster, I wanted it to. I wanted to paint a picture of the creature that emerged from his environment, that emerged from the sightings that that these old timers had reported, and that way it kept him up. It kept it apart, so to speak, from the just the modern template of Bigfoot. Right, right. Because it's it's kind of becoming a more uh, and as a cryptozoologist, I'm sure you'll you'll this will resonate with you. It's it's kind of becoming more acceptable or more um, you know endorsed idea that we're dealing with like multiple creatures here. If the Bigfoot exists and all these reports are accurate and all these flaps are accurate, we're, we're it's very likely you know that whatever's up there in Oregon is not the same thing as down here in Arkansas. It's like there we're dealing with things that are maybe part of the larger species or whatever, but are very different animals altogether, you know? Like lions and tigers, they're still big cats, but they're totally different uh, animals. Exactly, yeah, and that, that's, I agree, and that's kind of the way I see it, you know? You've got skunk apes and Bigfoot and different areas, and it's, yeah, they can definitely be uh, related, but they don't necessarily have to be one just, universal uh, creature, so it, it gives each of them, you know, evaluate each instance unto itself, you know. Right, right. Now talk about this story about the massive skeleton, because I have issues with this, but uh, I'll, I'll, get to, I'll get to them. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, obviously you know I'm pro-crypto, so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. not, this isn't a gotcha situation, but uh, I have I have issues with how this whole thing played out, I guess you could say. But talk about this story about the massive skeleton, because I feel like, and you note this in the book, that like even, it, it was talked about, it was mentioned, they made a documentary about it, um, you know, a picture exists of it, or at least the feet of it. Um, so this isn't like some huge secret, but then also it's shrouded in a tremendous amount of secrecy and has long been discussed sort of in rumor and innuendo on Bigfoot forums, despite the fact that a lot of information was out there. And I feel like your book really sort of sets the record straight and adds just tremendous detail to this story so that it can 
you know, maybe finally be put to rest or at least uh, a cl- seen in a clearer light. So I guess talk about this massive skeleton story or rumor and all that stuff that has sort of circulated for years, and, and now we know a little bit more about it. Oh Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely turned out to be a big, uh, you know, an interesting tangent of, of the whole Falk monster phenomenon. Uh, and like you say, this, the... The skeleton is, I've seen the same things on forums, people taking wild guesses at it, uh, have you seen this? There's just really no information, even though it's sort of available, but uh, it was hard for me to dig up, you know, everything on it, but I finally did find all the pieces, and I, I is, you know, uh, try not to give it, give it away too much here. Right. <laughs> uh, be tricky, but, uh, but basically I, I think my book finally covers every possible aspect of that. Um, I, I, I looked at it objectively, um, and I got information from as many people as I possibly could to piece together the entire history of that thing. Um, but I, I've actually seen it and, uh, that's when I saw it. I didn't really have a lot of prior knowledge of it. I hadn't read any Smokey's books, and Smokey talks about it quite a bit. Um, and when I saw it, I didn't know much, and I was—I mean, my jaw was almost on the floor. I was like, "What am I looking at? This is the craziest thing I've ever seen." I mean, it's spooky looking, it's creepy looking, and it—it it looks like the the carcass of, of some, you know, <laughs> ape-like creature or some huge animal. And, I, you know, I'm not the only one that's been able to view it. Um, but, uh, and the people I talked to also seem to kind of know what it is or have theories about it as well. So um, it was, it's just been a strange aspect of this just, uh, you can see I'm trying to. Yeah, I was just gonna, I was gonna cut you off there and say, <laughs> and say you're dancing here, but I, I understand. Because totally there's a, there's, I'll, I'll sort of, uh, let me sort of bail you out a little bit here. There's this mysterious skeleton. It was found in 1991-ish. It came into the possession of Smokey Crabtree, who cut a deal with these two guys who found it. And even though he put it on display for a while, then it went out of display. And it's sort of been hidden away, I guess you could say, for like the last uh, 20 years-ish. But Lyle and, and, and people who have investigated this previously, like police departments and stuff, have come to a pretty good conclusion of what it is. Um, and with that said, I think people can figure out what it isn't. Um, and the problem I have here, uh, is that okay? Was that good? <laughs> Yes, that was excellent. That was teaser enough for folks to to pick up the book yeah. and, and and find out what we're talking about. My issue here um, with the whole thing, and with all due respect to Smokey Crabtree, um, I don't know him. I don't know him from Crabby Smoke Tree. So you know, I have there's no this is not a personal thing. But it's like, why is this guy still keeping this thing a secret? After 20 years, I mean, I can understand maybe five years you want to hold on to it and, and wait for the DNA test to come out and stuff. But, like, 20 years, dude, first of all, 
the jig is up. It can't be. It can't be a Bigfoot, man, because there's no way it would be sitting around for 20 years. Like if it was a Bigfoot, it would be. It would. It would be all over, man. You'd. You'd be a multimillionaire. You'd have the Bigfoot. So it's like, I feel like this guy, and again, I don't know him or anything, but I feel like he's sort of perpetuating the mystery for mystery's sake. Unbeknownst, I don't know why, because he's not apparently making any money off of having this thing in his garage or whatever it is. So I don't know. Maybe enlighten me about all that. Straighten me out here. Because <laughs> I, I was getting frustrated and confounded with all this. Because it's like, if you really want to get to the bottom of this, we need to eliminate this stuff that is just clouding the whole mystery and not helping anybody. And, and, and to perpetuate this idea isn't really to the benefit of anybody, including Smokey Crabtree, because he doesn't appear to be making any money off of it and doesn't appear that there's any way to make any money off of it. Yeah, now I'm going to get off my soapbox here and, and, <laughs> and turn it over to you on that one. Well, I'm glad you said that. Uh, that that's, a, that's a definite uh, problem with this whole thing. And, and unfortunately, for those that know Smokey, he's a peculiar guy. I mean, he's, a, he's a great guy, and uh, he's contributed a, quite a bit to the Falk Monster history and, and research. Uh, it's a mystery to me why he is so uh, reluctant to uh, just do something with that skeleton or, you know, let people examine it or just do something or don't. Right. But he does keep that shroud of mystery going, and that's one reason that I wanted to just set the record straight. I wanted to put the whole story in one place. Now, he does cover all this stuff in his memoirs, for a lot of it. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't, I went and talked to the, to the sheriff, uh, down there near Marshall where it was found, and, you know, I got the rest of the story. And I've also got all the news reports. I got everything. You know, and that, the documentary Hunt for Bigfoot, which sort of used that skeleton as its centerpiece, was worthless. I mean, it was just, I'm just looking at it thinking, I mean, are these people idiots? I mean, they're not even going about the investigation right, you know, and they're not getting the right people to comment on it. They're only getting one side. And so this, this skeleton's just been a, you know, a, a can of worms and, and in a way, well, I mean, this brings another point. In a way, I, I, I kind of saw why no one else has written a book on this because I'm in very dangerous territory by writing this book. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna piss off a lot of people. Yeah. I, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I was a little worried at first when I started trying to write the book. You know, I'm coming at it as an outsider, you know, but I'm just a journalist and, you know, in the, in this approach and a researcher. And I wanted to lay out the story, and that's all I'm doing. I'm, I'm using, uh, I'm backing it up with interviews um, and newspaper accounts and other people's words, you know. And I just tell the story, but um, people get heated under the collar about that skeleton thing. I mean, people just have told me flat out, that, you know, don't say anything about that skeleton, you know. Uh, why? Why would they say, like, don't? Well, I, 
I don't know. That's what I mean. It's like, it's pretty clear, the whole story. I just don't understand why we have to sort of keep pretending, basically, about the whole thing. And I've seen, you know, the forums and the questions about it, and I wanted to, I wanted to set it straight, because if I'm writing the history of the Thought Monster, well, that's a part of it, and I'm not going to avoid it. I'm not going to tell part of the story. I'm not going to tell one person's side of it. I'm going to tell the whole thing. And that's exactly what I did, and uh, at great risk to my own uh, well-being, but so be it. That, that's uh, That was part of my job here. And so I guess I don't have an answer as to why Smokey keeps up the ruse with the whole thing. I really don't. And, I mean, you know, in defense of Smokey, he's getting on in years. He's, you know, he's not a... You know, he's had some health issues and stuff, and I think that the Fountain Monster for him has been a blessing and a curse, you know, but I wish he'd just give me the skeleton and be done with it. Exactly, yeah. I'll I'll do something with it, whether I just let people see it freely and, and, you know... Pack it up in a crate, send it to Lauren Coleman up in Portland so it can be put on display in the museum and, and, you know, put an end to this. There you go. Yeah, even that. And, uh, it should be out there for people to see. And I, I hope that someday, uh, myself or another guy, another, uh, friend of mine, uh, could get a hold of it. It would be awesome. Maybe, yeah. maybe that'll happen. I, I just, I fear that it'll be junked and thrown away because it is hidden and it's treated sort of like, uh, just to keep up the shroud of mystery, it's just been hidden away. It's 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 a strange thing. Yeah, yeah, maddening is the word I would use to describe it. Yeah, just, maddening. Uh, I mean, you can tell, and you can tell. I mean, when I'm talking, I'm just like, Ugh, I don't know. It's hard to. I just don't know what to explain about it. It's something that I I don't even I can't explain. You know. Right, right. It's it's frustrating. And like I said, I mean, this would be, it would be permissible to me personally if this was like something that popped up like two or three years ago. It's like, okay, I understand you want to sit on it, but it's like, dude, 20 years later, let it go, man. You know, set the skeleton free, dude. There's not even a picture of this thing? Like, come on. This is this is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, if I would have, if I would have put a picture of that thing in, in my book, I mean, you know, I better have a lot of money prepared to defend myself in court because yeah. it would have been, uh, I mean, I'm already at, I'm already at risk here, <laughs> but <laughs> now what do you so, mean? You've said that a couple times now. Like what? Well, like some Southern justice here, that kind of thing. Uh, well, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think I'll be hanged or anything. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of money issues back and forth, and this plays into even crosses over into the movie The Creature, The Creature from Black Lake. Uh, the guy, the McCullers that made that movie, they own part of the skeleton or did own part of the skeleton. Uh, Smokey owned part of it. There's all, there's all these parties that quote unquote own part of it for some bizarre reason. To me, if you're going to own it, either you display it or, or make money on it or just shut up. But, you know, you, yeah, there's other people at play in here that for some reason want to keep that thing as if it's like a, you know an alien body from Roswell <laughs> when we know it's not right right that's the thing yeah I'm actually I'm sending you a picture of uh 
they just found a mammoth skeleton that <laughs> it was just ironic that it came up in uh today when I was reading the book because it, it, it look it looks actually if you cut the head off it looks kind of what I imagine this thing looks like but uh, but yeah it's a it's a frustrating it's a frustrating you hit the nail on the head though it's like it I'm sure to the rumor mill and and to people who just hear about it they imagine it almost like this Roswellian alien that's tucked away hidden somewhere but it's like if an average person had an alien body again I go back to this. 20 years, man, you know? Yeah. It's like, if you want, if you, that's why I, I really applaud you. I mean, you're on the side of truth. And that's, yeah. that's what this program's about, and that's what these listeners want, you know? They don't want someone coming on here telling some shadowy story about a mysterious skeleton that, that surfaced, but we don't know exactly what the story is. I mean, right. the story's in the book, folks, Beast of Boggy Creek. So go out and get it. But we wanted to also, I don't want to leave people sort of, I don't want to mislead people is the best way to put it. So, you know, right. and like I said, uh, I found, I found my blood boiling as I read that part, <laughs> part of the book. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that feedback. And yeah, it's, and I did, I, I wanted to put the truth out there because really, I mean, it's a fascinating, strange story, no matter what the thing is. I mean, it was still a cool story and, right. and I don't even have to make you know, I could have I could have upheld all kinds of mystery about this and that, but you know, I'm just I'm just laying it out there. Here's the story. Here's what it is. Um, it, it still makes for interesting uh, reading without me having to yeah fudge anything or do anything. I wanted to tell the complete truth because I've been standing in a I've been I, I've been standing in a room with very extremely highly prominent Bigfoot researchers, people that everybody knows. And I've heard this subject come up with this skeleton and I could see how nobody knew the, the complete story. And I'm just sitting there going, why are we even talking about this thing? It's not, it's just forget it. Yeah. You know, and it's because there's been so much misinformation and, and no information that it, it, it's considered to be some viable evidence, but, uh, yeah, hopefully now I'm just glad that now the book's out, everybody can just read it for themselves and now we can move on. <laughs> exactly. Now to sort of tie a bow on, on the, on the Falk monster and the beast of Boggy Creek in a sense, you know, contrary also to what people may think, you know, there was this flap in the early 70s and before that the flap in Jonesville, but the, you know, the monster didn't go away. You know, people may think, okay, well, this is an isolated thing that happened. It was a frenzy. It was maybe mass hysteria, and then nothing ever happened again. Like, these reports continued onward into the 80s, 90s, and the aughts, right? Right, yeah. that uh, Most people had that impression. Oh, that all happened back in the 70s. That was cool, you know. And, you know, when going into it, uh, you know, I pretty much had that belief as well because, you know, it had gotten so much attention in the 70s and movies, and then, then they started making crappy sequels. You know, now it's just laughable. So it kind of backfired, and any further sightings didn't really get the same respect or coverage as they once did. So in order for me to um, uh, detail all the sightings that have happened since, you know, I had to I had to go up there. I had to talk to people and uh, do a lot of uh, personal research to get the stories. And what I discovered is, 
in fact, there's been many sightings uh, since then that were even, in my opinion, more compelling than, than the early ones. Um, you know, I've got sightings, and a really good sighting in, in 1981. A young man saw it in Jonesville, um, you know, which I personally interviewed this guy. This will be the first time that story's out. I've got, in 1991, there was two sightings in which more than five people saw the thing at one time. Yeah. Which is amazing. I mean, and that was in a short period of time. And I talked to two witnesses out of, uh, five that saw it in, in this one instance. And, um, you know, those, those sightings in the nineties were amazing. There's several more. And then, uh, you know, I talked to, uh, the retired sheriff, uh, Phillips who was involved, he was there since the get-go in the 70s, and, uh, you know, he told me about a lot of sightings in the 90s. He said, you know, people reported them. We just didn't run to the newspaper or anything, or, you know, there's no reason to. And, and uh, they sort of got swept under the table. And so, uh, you know, and I even talked to people who had sightings in, in the 2000s, a girl there's one of my books there was a sighting in 2010 and of course once the book comes out now I, I learned of a sighting in 2011 so whereas I thought there'd be no part two I'm already thinking oh man this this just it never ends man <laughs> yeah yeah so this thing is a presence down there it wasn't just a one-time thing it seems to be still in 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 the thick of it if you will no pun intended I guess you could say um <laughs> right yeah definitely I thought it was interesting, too. Uh, you sort of trace how it stands to reason that the creature would sort of move towards Falk from Jonesville as, as development went on. Where do you think this thing may be kind of lurking? Still in the general area, or has it maybe moved a few miles one way or the other? Or obviously, we, if you knew that, we'd bag one. But, I mean, how how close do you think we are as far as, like, whereabouts it may be lurking now? Well, it seems to me that the, the, the you know, there's been a, a lot of um, clearing of those forests up there over the years. They've put in another major highway. Um, there used to be only Highway 71, which incidentally it was called the Monster Expressway for a while, which was, <laughs> I thought was very cool. They <laughs> name a highway, a Monster Expressway. Who knows? And, uh, but they put in another larger highway and that cleared a lot of trees, um, from Falk. Jonesville, Jonesville's still very remote, um, but it's not like it was back in the day where you could just disappear into the woods and never see anybody for a week. Um, so as you withdraw back from Falk and Jonesville, then you hit the Mercer Bayou and some of that swampy area and then to the west, the Sulphur River Wildlife Management Area. Um, I think that's where any animals would naturally retreat, um, large animals like this. And, you know, those areas are still, there's still a lot of very remote areas in there. And, uh, you know, moving on down to East Texas, East Texas is, you know, heavily forested. And it provides, in my opinion, a, a pretty wide range that, that something could move and exist. And so I think that you're probably not going to, you're just not going to get as many sightings in Falk. It, it's not quite on the edge of the woods like it once was. But uh, occasionally, you know, 
uh, animals move, and apparently it's still been seen, you know. Right, right. Well, it's always something to the idea, and you kind of mentioned it here uh, in the book about how there seems to be a correlation of seasonal rainfall and sightings. And also, there's also, in my opinion, maybe the possibility of some kind of migratory pattern that we might want to look at as well. But I think that, you know, the more we kind of look at those things, the the better off we are as far as figuring out where these things might be. Oh, certainly. Uh, I, I, I looked into that rainfall. A lot of the townspeople, you know, who could recall a lot of these instances, uh, they all said that as well. They would say, you know, I, I think that during heavy, years of heavy rain, we had more sightings. You know, um, of course, this data was so old and stuff, I couldn't couldn't quite, you know, get a hold of every everything to um, completely analyze it all. Yeah. Uh, maybe at some point I could, but uh, yeah, it, it seemed to be a viable theory. You know. Yeah, that was tremendous. I mean, if I had the money and the wherewithal, I'd be sitting on on a weather situation waiting for that kind of perfect storm, if you will. Again, no pun intended. And then head down there to find, start looking then. You know, at least that way you have some indicator that, you know, the time may be well to go look for it. So Yeah, yeah, you you certainly have better chances during those times. So yeah. So all the advantage you could have. If you're down there, folks, and it's raining a lot, Get out into the woods and start looking for this thing. That's right. <laughs> just don't, don't be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> don't be afraid. The falcon monster is, is he's only hurt a few people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, one sort of recurring thing I noticed, too, in the book is uh, these stories of people who shoot at the creature. And, uh, you know, what do you make of that? Is that because part of it's like, you know, there's no signs of blood or anything like that. So... Part of me wonders if that's bravado, where it's like, of course, yeah, of course I shot at the thing. I, you know, where you know, you're not going to deny that you that you pissed, you know, you're not going to say you pissed your pants and didn't shoot at it. So you got to say something. So you're like, oh, I shot at it and ran away, or or there's something more to it. You raise the idea that maybe, you know, in one instance somebody shot at it. I think it was uh, Lynn Crabtree with with shotgun, but it was like uh, squirrel pellet, and maybe it didn't even affect the thing because of the thick fur. Although also. When you talk about shooting, you know, these Bigfoot-like creatures, then that raises the specter of the paranormal Bigfoot idea that, that, you know, you can't shoot at it because it's not really something that can be shot. So I guess I, I'm throwing a lot of things into this bullia base of a question, but what, what do you make of, you know, people shooting at the creature and, and what it might tell us about the actual entity? Well, I think some of that was bravado. Uh, some of the people who claim to have shot at it 15 times or whatever, those particular folks are uh, <laughs> apt to exaggerate, I, I think. I mean, no disrespect to them or their families, but I think everybody would agree with me about those particular personalities. So, there, you know, I don't think that the thing was shot at as many as, many times as claimed. Now, Lynn Crabtree, I did have trouble reconciling that because I thought this kid can shoot a squirrel you know uh, how can he miss you know something this large but you know then you have to consider well squirrel shot I mean you know if you shoot you're using squirrel shot against a bear I mean they got the advantage on that so yeah uh, you know there's a lot of other little factors that go on here um, that I feel 
don't necessarily categorize it as any kind of um, totally paranormal entity that can't be shot at. I mean, I usually approach things as much as I can, and using my hunting background, I, I look at it as some sort of an animal, you know, a biological animal, like anything else. It's it's it could have other adaptable features that make it more elusive and uh, tougher. Who knows? Right. Um, but I never found, you know, in all the all the shooting and all that stuff at it, I never really got the vibe that that people were implying that it was able to disappear or anything like that or that it was likely to even done that. And most of the times when it really could have been shot, like it was seen by uh, this woman hunter in 1965, um, in most cases everybody would they, – they, they couldn't determine if it was a man or an ape or just what it was, and so they were reluctant to shoot at it. You know, it doesn't matter how much people run their mouth. When you're not really sure, you might be shooting at a man, you know, you're going to think twice. Right, right, because then you're in a whole mess of trouble. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the times when there was good sightings, when it was a hunter sitting there uh, in, a, in a tree stand or something, that they could have picked it off. Uh, you know, every everything about their sighting was saying that, well, I couldn't quite, I thought it was a man, and then I realized it had fur, and by the time it's out of sight, you know, you just can't make that quick of a judgment to say, well, it's totally a, an ape, I guess. I'll shoot it, you know. By the time you yeah. can see it, it's gone, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like the whole idea of why people don't get pictures of these kind of things. It's like you really don't have the opportunity to, you only yeah. really have the time to process what you're seeing, and then and then that's over. By the time you, you process it, it the, the moment's gone, so. Yeah, it's difficult at best, even if you're, you know, you think you're ready and everything. These animal sightings happen often very fast, especially if, if it's a creature that really doesn't want to be seen and may be a little more intelligent than the other animals. Yeah, your opportunity is so narrow. Now, you mentioned your hunting background, and you also mentioned the uh, the long-standing debate in the cryptozoology field, the kill or no kill. It's always a fun sort of topic for me to discuss with, with, with cryptozoologists when they come on the show. I personally lean a little closer to kill than no kill, uh, in my opinion, because, you know, I consider the Bigfoot my nemesis, and I want this story to end in, in a positive way where we can actually, you know, have one and, and, and move on and, and, you know, live in a world where Bigfoot is real and, you know, that's my dream, I guess you could say. <laughs> so, so I lean, you know, I guess I, I, I won't outright endorse the kill aspect of it, but I certainly wouldn't begrudge anyone who did. I guess that's my point of view. But what's your take on, on this whole kill versus no kill debate that still rages on in, in cryptozoology? Well, I, you know, just the, me as a person, I, I don't try to impart the way I think on others. So I'm cool with whatever, whatever anybody wants to do. Uh, I'm not going to tell them otherwise. For me personally, um, you know, I probably wouldn't shoot at it just simply because, you know, if I see it, that's good enough for me. I don't, I mean, I may think otherwise after I see it, but I don't really need to prove it to the world. If I see it, I'm good with it. Um, but, yeah, if you're talking about trying to end the debate, then obviously, that's never going to end unless there's an actual body. I mean, I don't care what kind of clear picture you take. It'll be a, 
you know, that'll be debated on the internet forever. Yeah. Unless the, the, the body is the only way to do it. And, you know, I'm aware of that. So, I, I don't, you know, you know, I've been a hunter, you know, most of my life and, you know, uh, I, I'll be glad to shoot a turkey and, and gobble it up. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I probably wouldn't go out and shoot some, uh, you know, exotic game in Africa just to get a trophy on my wall because I just, just don't care about that kind of stuff. So right, right. That's a whole different kettle of fish, you know. Like yeah. I, I wouldn't shoot a rhino because we know rhinos are real. There's no <laughs> right. There's no point in that. But I feel like if I was in the mix and one and you know when a bigfoot crossed my path, I I don't know. I feel like I'd be compelled to. But you know, quite honestly, and you know, self as as self deprecating as it is, I, I'll admit it, folks. I'm very likely to also piss my pants. So you know, <laughs> I can't I can't totally mock Lynn Crabtree. Oh, not Lynn Crabtree. I can't totally mock the guy in the story earlier for uh for his antics because oh. it's very likely that the same fate would have befallen me in that situation yes you would be the bobby ford of your time <laughs> um yeah i mean i'm cool yeah i mean it's hard to say and, and what i you know there's so much debate and hot wind going on about kill or no kill i'm like well nobody's shot one yet so you know i'm not going to waste a lot of time with deciding if they're what the intelligence level or how much like a man they are, I don't know. I mean, we'll never answer that. It's a, uh, until one's brought in. So yeah, that's exactly. You make a good point. You know, no one's actually shot it yet. So what? You know, yeah. it's got the advantage. So you know, even if people don't agree with somebody who's you know running around actually trying to kill it, well, so far nobody's killed it. So we don't have much to worry about. So you know. Right, right. I can almost guarantee, too, that, you know, in the event that someone did shoot it, they would be completely unaware of this kill or no kill debate. I think it would be a completely separate, you know, someone third party, completely uninvolved in the cryptozoology community who just pops the thing, you know, yeah. out of self-defense or, or accidentally or whatever, you know. So it's almost a moot point because I don't think that – I really don't think that anyone in the cryptozoology would – community would really do that necessarily, or at least I think that if it happened, it wouldn't be someone in the cryptozoology community. And 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 the stories about this creature, too, and how people see it, you know, when they're driving around in a sense, it almost makes you wonder if, like, if the folk monster and Boggy Creek beast, you know, if it's almost like a prime candidate for the more benign situation where a lot of people say, you know, well, someday someone's going to hit one of these things with their car, and that's going to be how this whole thing bursts open. I have a feeling that if that happens, that area is a prime candidate for that kind of thing to happen because it seems like it's crossing a lot of roads, and that's where a lot of the sightings are, and, you know, accidents happen. Oh, yeah. It it, it loves to cross roads, apparently, so it's, it's playing with its own fate right there. So Right. Uh, I mean, I had a sighting recently where it came about three feet from getting hit by a car, so it seems to be edging closer. It's, I don't know if it, some of those creatures' judgments are lacking, but yeah, we might just well have one get run over in, in the road not too long in the future. Yeah, so, you know, that's the impression I got from reading the book, that it's like, well, this, that definitely could happen down there, because it seems like, you know, you had one. In, you have two instances, as you said earlier, where 
you know, you got cars coming in opposite directions and this thing crosses the road between them. It's like, this thing's just playing in traffic now. <laughs> totally. It must have a death wish. I don't know, man. Yeah. Now, you obviously, you're well more aware of the geography of the area. Um, what are the possibilities that this creature is somehow connected with the swamp ape of Florida? To me, I've always felt that this that the swamp ape, skunk ape in Florida is more, always seemed a little more orangutan or, or a little more what we know as a primate uh, than sort of the more taller, upright, shaggy-haired creature that's described uh, like the foul monster. So in my mind, I always pictured them as two different possibly related, but two different species, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, just the same as I feel like that uh, the Pacific Northwest variety of Bigfoot, uh, you know, Patty and her kin are probably uh, definitely different than a foul monster. So, you know, he sits somewhere between a, a skunk ape and a, and a Bigfoot. There you go, yeah, exactly. Is it close enough where that is is that kind of a vast enough difference in, in you know, uh in space where it's likely that these are different creatures? It's not like I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's not it's not the possibility this thing could travel from Florida up to there or this is, a, is it small enough is it a large enough distance between the two that, that they could be due pockets of different animals? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I definitely it, it definitely probably couldn't travel that wide of a range. Um, it's a pretty good jump. I mean, there's, you know, just a lot of swampy areas from uh, Louisiana, you know, Alabama, Georgia, all down there, but it just seems too far. They would just, this would put these things just too much in in the eyes of witnesses. Uh, so I think they're, they've got to be more reclusive, which kind of isolates them into their own regions a little bit more. All right. Um, and then I guess to sort of head towards the close here, you do a great job in the book of addressing all these different theories as to what this thing is and sort of canceling them out. And uh, we don't have to go through all of them, but I'll just sort of hit on them so people know what's in the book. I mean, you, you do a great job of sort of dispelling the idea that these are escaped circus animals or that they are the creation of moonshiners trying to hide their, their uh, stills. Or that, you know, they're the result of moonshiners who've been drinking too much. And I'm sure that's probably something that a lot of ignorant people say right away. You know, oh, you got a bunch of, you got a bunch of country bumpkins down there and they're drinking too much and they see these things. I mean, from the stories in here that, you know, I, I can't recall a single story in there where anyone was said to be out drinking and they ran into this thing. A lot of instances there are a bunch of people together and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, in, and I didn't have a lot of reports like that. And, and in fact, anything that I deemed to be uh, kind of sketchy or, or not credible, I didn't include in the book. So everything that's in there was what I believed to be the most solid sightings. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of others, really, but there was some goofballs that said they saw it. And, you know, they were obviously just, you know, driving around in the 70s, kids, uh, you know, goofing around. I just threw those right out. So, um, you know, definitely that the whole notion of everybody's drunk down there.
they're sure they see weird things is is totally wrong. Yeah. Well, I just want to clear that up, so we, because <laughs> you know those people out there probably rolling oh, their yeah. eyes, going, "Well, what are you, what are you covering this for? It's stupid, you know." It's, they 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 need to really pick up the beast of Boggy Creek to uh to really get to the bottom of all this. And at the end of the day, it just it it appears to me that we have some kind of Bigfoot esque creature running around down there. I mean, it doesn't seem to add up in any other way to anything else, and it's it's a classic sort of tale of the paranormal in a sense where you get one explanation could explain one of the sightings but it doesn't work for all of the other sightings until you finally get to the the Bigfoot creature so that to me is what I think makes it such a solid thing as we said earlier like about Carl Finch he's an outsider so he couldn't be susceptible to the mass hysteria you know this folk monster fever came along way after the Jonesville sightings, so they weren't trying to get on board and, and, and monetize the whole thing. So it's it's like you, as you cancel out more and more potential reasons, you're, you're ending up left with a Bigfoot-like creature, it seems. Yeah, that was my conclusion. You know, it's, it, you know, I'm not sure exactly what these folks saw, but they definitely saw something very strange, and they definitely saw something... Uh, that they believe to be real and that they, uh, describe, you know, in, in faith to their fellow friends and family, uh, in all honesty. And, you know, it's, it's just, it, at the end of the day, when I, when I got done with my research, I mean, you know, I just, I definitely believe that there's, there's something down there. There's gotta be. There's just, you just can't dispel all these sightings, you know. And I, and people should know too that you know this area now is with the advent of the internet and stuff. There's people, there's groups down there who are on top of this thing. You know, there this isn't sort of slipping through the cracks anymore, which is a good thing. Sounds like you know, as the internet came along, we got a chance to really focus in more on the Falk area and the Boggy Creek realm to get closer to getting to the bottom of this and actually collecting better sightings and, and really being able to investigate them better. Oh, certainly. The the way, you know, the exchange of information among uh, area researchers in Texas and, and Arkansas and Oklahoma and so forth, uh, you know, it, it's great. And it, it, uh, it provides data and, and resources for everybody else to look at and to start correlating all these sightings together and let's Let's combine our notes. Let's let's uh, let's combine all of our sighting reports and and analyze those. And that that this allows that. And I think that that you know hopefully my book will provide a lot of data about uh, the Boggy Creek thing and uh, will help others uh, to expand their efforts to get to the bottom of it. You know. I think so. Yeah, I feel like the book will really light a spark under people. Uh you know, who maybe had dismissed this previously as a, you know, an aspect of the movie or something like that, or a creation of the movie to take a second look at it, which is important. I, I was, I had always been under the impression that it was just a series of Bigfoot sightings and they, you know, they made a movie about them. I didn't realize till I read your book that it's, there's so much more to the story. Exactly, exactly. And, and since you know the area pretty well, this is always another question I sort of pose to cryptozoologists, uh, 
you know, and, and I figure it'll be sort of a fun one to, uh, to throw at you. Let's say, you know, money's no object. Let's say I won that big lottery they had last week. And, you know, I called you up and I said, Lyle, whatever you need, let's get this thing by the end of 2012 or whatever. You know, let's just get this thing. How would you go about, you know, going after the Falk monster? Well, I think that the best way to to get a sighting, a photo, or a body, however, whatever you want, would be to get enough equipment and be able to go into the remote areas and stay for an extended period of time. You know, get away from, uh, you know, don't go to Falk, don't, don't even go to Jonesville. I mean, don't bother driving the roads. I mean, go out there into the remote bayous um, in the Sulphur River wildlife management area where nobody else is because if this creature, you know, is a real animal and is, uh, you know, trying to remain elusive, that's where he's going to be. So I think if you could, if you could, ha- if you had the resources, you know, you, you could just stay out there for six months on end, um, you know, and you could get yourself into the area where these creatures will most likely be and then just kind of try various techniques, you know, try a little bit of a grid search, uh, walking, try, I mean, it's easy to canoe around down in there because there's so much water, so that's an easy way to, to be silent and to move about, um, you know, try some still hunting, you know, set up in a tree stand, um, try things like that. So I think if you tried a variety of these things, you would certainly increase your chance of a visible sighting because if you look at the sightings, you know, it was, you know, 103 stands have seen it. Um, people who were setting out trot lines who were in the river uh, have seen it. People who were fishing uh, in ponds quietly, they've seen it. So if you just kind of look at what were the circumstances around the most credible sightings um, in the woods and just use those as your kind of starting point. I think that that's what I would do I had the, the money and the vacation time. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, having looked through the, the list of uh, sightings, it, it appears a lot seemed to happen, you know, between like, uh, the springtime and sort of like mid-fall. But then that stands to reason that that's when people are out and about and stuff. So you can't really base, you know, you can't really base too much on that and the idea that, you know, that the creature's around that time of year. Because, like, people really aren't out in the woods hunting and stuff, presumably, right, in, in the wintertime. Uh, yeah, not too much. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the problems with the summer out there is it is incredibly hot. Uh, you know, last year down here it was just miserable, you know, getting up to 108, 110 degrees. And if you put in, get in a high humidity area, it is horrible. And they have what's called buffalo gnats down there. We were recently uh, canoeing down the Sulphur River, and these things just attack you like a swarm. Oh, like God. Giant gnats. And it's miserable. So it's it's unfortunately kind of hard because when the summer months hit, creatures may be apt to be moving around or whatever uh, in the early morning, late evenings. But if you're going to be out there for days on end, it's it's kind of miserable. So, you know, spring and fall are the, are the best times to get out. And, of course, those end up being hunting season, so you got to watch out for 
you know, people hunt deer. And, I mean, you know, a lot of hunters up in these areas. Um, and but that's what you know generates some of the sightings. But there there has been some in the winter. Yeah. And you know, if you if you can move about in the winter, I mean, animals certainly are going to move around probably a little more even during daylight hours or, or things like that because it's not so miserable. Um, the winters can be pretty cold here. People don't don't realize how cold it gets, but sometimes they can be fairly light. So you almost kind of have to uh, be ready at a moment's notice. You know, I just kind of keep looking for the weekends that all of a sudden get to that right temperature where it's not too cold, not too hot, you know, and try to get out on the on the river up there or something, you know. Yeah. So because, you know, really there's there's been a concentration of sightings, but they still exist all across, you know, all around, year-round. So. It sounds like, and uh, based on what you're telling me and what you've researched, you know, this creature's still lurking out there. So hopefully uh, more information comes to light and, and uh, you know, it takes its place amongst the more famous, well, it already is pretty famous in the uh, in the realm of American cryptids. So yeah. this book will uh, push it even further towards the top, I think. Yes, I hope so. It would. I have a certain childlike affection for the Falk monster, you know, that I've always had. So I'm, I'm honored to contribute to his further success and discovery. <laughs> <laughs> You've teased uh, a, a potential sequel to the book, but you know, what's next for you? What What do you have going on? I know you got the band and stuff, and chances are you're probably sort of uh, balancing both of these these interests and, and work. So, you know, what's going on? What's next for Lyle Blackburn? Well, I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out that, uh, you know, it's, I've had so many suggestions and, and it, so many of my own ideas, you know, I, I've thought about doing some documentary stuff. Um, I want to write another book. I've got an idea for, um, kind of a sim- similar style book. Um, I, do, I am interested in doing a sequel, and I think I could really do it. But I, I want to let it rest a while and ferment, you know, and see what comes up out of the out of the first book. So I think down the road I'll probably end up doing a sequel because there's already been some really cool stuff that I've discovered, and some stuff that I didn't put in the book um, that man people uh, would be interested in. So I'm not sure what the the next thing up to bat is, but. But, you know, I've got a lot of crazy ideas, so <laughs> I'm sure it'll be big, whatever it is. Exactly. That's always good. And, of course, folks can uh, stay tuned to MonstroBizarro.com. That's your website, as well as FolkMonster.net. Links are all over Banal of America, so be sure to check that out, folks. And uh, on that note, we come to the end of this conversation. Lyle, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and giving us so much time. I really do appreciate it quite a bit. And as I said, you've done just yeoman's work here, really crystallizing the folk monster, the beast of Boggy Creek, and, and placing it in the proper context of cryptozoological history. And as we've discussed over the course of this conversation, really sort of straightening out a lot of the misconceptions that have surrounded this thing. So, I mean, you have done tremendous work, and I I tip my hat to you, sir. Just an amazing job. For any serious student of the paranormal and cryptozoology, this is a must-have book, my friends. The Beast of Boggy Creek, the true story of the Falk Monster. It's from our friends at Anomalist Books, so be sure to go and pick it up. Lyle, once again... Kudos to you, sir. Outstanding work, and thank you once again for coming on the show. 
You bet. Thanks for having me. It's been great. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Lyle Blackburn for joining us on the program and giving us so much time. Be sure to check out his website, www.monstrobizarro.com. Pretty simple, all one word, monstrobizarro.com. And definitely go out and get your hands on The Beast of Boggy Creek, published by Anomalist Books. Just punch in Anomalist Books or The Beast of Boggy Creek to find out more information on this awesome book. And be sure to check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA audio listener feedback. But since we are well over our 10-day goal for this edition of the program, I am going to askew BOA audio listener feedback this week. Save it for another edition of the program. I've got tons of awesome emails and messages from folks with insights into the program as well as guest requests and other fun stuff. I've got them all saved. Don't worry about that, folks. But like I said, since we are so late in the process, I want to hurry up and get this program out to people as fast as possible. Otherwise, it just may slip through the cracks for another few days. If you'd like to get in touch with me for a future installment of BOA Audio Listener Feedback or you just want to write to me about the program, there are a number of ways to do it. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And, of course, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of fun discussions going on there with regards to the paranormal as well as pop culture. In addition to all that, I am, of course, on Facebook and Twitter. Just punch in B-I-N-N-A-L-L and you will find me there very easily. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, I would be remiss if I did not plug Banal of America on Facebook. Just punch it in, Banal of America, you'll find our Facebook page Please like us on Facebook, and you'll be given access to insights on the program, as well as teasers for upcoming editions of BOA Audio. Up next, please allow me to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we've got an all-new piece from Tina Senna sharing some of her ghost stories with the BOA readers, and we've got an all-new Shadow of the Shinigami by Marla Pena that is locked and loaded and ready to be posted at BOA very, very soon, and we've got a few other columns in the pipeline as well. We say it week in and week out, my friends, but it is the truth. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Ben All of America, then you're only getting half of the story. 
B-O-A. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the BOA franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. There's two ways to do so. Head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. You'll see it right there on the left-hand side of the screen. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, simple, and secure. But what if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a donation then via snail mail? Well, luckily, we have a P.O. box that can take care of that as well. You can mail your donations to Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. As always, and as noted here at the end of the program numerous times, if you are mailing a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benall, and not Benall of America, since my bank will not cash those donations. And please include some means of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation. As always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, commercial-free, and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of the program, we are welcoming back one of our long-time friends, talking about the crackpot historian himself, Adam Go Rightly. Adam has a new book out titled Happy Trails to High Weirdness, and it is a collection of musings and anecdotes from Adam's lengthy career looking at the world of the paranormal and parapolitical. Always fun when I get the chance to sit down with Adam Go Rightly for an extended conversation on the world of esoterica, and that is just what we have done. Happy Trails to High Weirdness. A Conspiracy Theorist's Tour Guide. That is, of course, the new book from Adam Go Rightly, which we'll be discussing in depth on the next edition of BOA Audio. Be sure to tune in. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Once again, big, big thanks to Lyle Blackburn for coming on the show. And, of course, thanks to all you great folks out there the hardcore BOA audio listeners. You are the fuel that drives the BOA mothership. Thank you for making BOA audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off. <laughs>